Bill, you write that we have created a, a new planet of sorts. Um, you note this change with the, uh, the new spelling of Earth with two A's. I wonder if you could just give a quick snapshot of what has happened and what the future will be like if uh, something isn't quickly done. Sure. Uh, here's what's happened so far. We've burned enough coal and gas and oil and hence put enough CO2 into the atmosphere uh, to raise the temperature of the planet globally averaged about one degree Celsius. Uh, that's been enough in turn, that extra heat, which works out to about two watts per square meter of the Earth's surface, that's been enough to cause all kinds of change. Uh, the Arctic is melting very quickly. The atmosphere has become about 5% moister in the last 40 years, setting us up for these record deluges and downpours that we're seeing around the world, uh, for instance, Pakistan this summer. And we're seeing, uh, though the globally average temperature is only up a degree, that masks an enormous uh, heat waves, uh, 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 extremes in temperature. So, so far this year, We've seen 19 nations set new all-time heat records, as opposed to only one nation setting an all-time cold record. Uh, we've seen the highest temperature ever recorded in Asia, 129 degrees in Pakistan. We've seen that uh, remarkable siege of heat and fire across Russia, on and on and on. That's all with one degree. That's what we've done so far. The climatologists make it very clear uh, that if we don't, to, uh, if we don't manage the trick of getting off fossil fuel in the very near future, we'll see an increase of four or five degrees before the century is out. If one degree melts the Arctic, we do not wish to find out what four degrees does. Bill, 20 years ago, uh, you wrote a book called The End of Nature that offered truly one of the earliest warnings about global warming. Uh, those warnings uh, went largely unheeded up until really just recently, and uh, with the predictions that you just uh, described um, and, and things kind of coming, really many of the things you wrote about 20 years ago coming uh, to truth, um, why has it taken so long? With so much at stake, evidence mounting, why has it taken so long for us to get to a tipping point of change? Well, look, this is a very hard problem. Um, we've got... Uh, 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 fossil fuel is the center of our economy. It's the most profitable business there ever was, and hence the people who make enormous profit from it will do their best to keep that business model from changing. And all of us are kind of used to the uh, uh, lifestyle that cheap fossil fuel provides. Uh, pretty much everything we do all day uh, uses it. So, you know, it's a serious undertaking to go about switching to what comes next, to the sun, the wind, whatever, uh, it'll be the biggest undertaking humans have ever had to do if we manage to even get going on it, which so far we really haven't, as you point out. You call, Bill, for a, a world that no longer seeks economic growth. Um, in fact, one that uh, in, would scale back. How does this message uh, to a student, and I know you're an educator yourself, how does this message apply to the many college students that you and I both see who are accumulating a large educational debt? Uh, they're fearful, uh, trying to position themselves, if you will, for those post, increasingly fewer post-graduation jobs. How can we protect the earth while still providing livelihoods uh, for the growing number of un- and underemployed young people? 
Yeah, I think the key is to figure out how we're going to relocalize our economies. Uh, we spent the last hundred years with the benefit of cheap energy globalizing things enormously. Uh, as a result, we make almost nothing in this country. We've consolidated farming in the hands of about 1% of the population. Uh, uh, we need to figure out how to relocalize what we do. And I, I think that that's not only possible, I think it's almost inevitable if we begin to take other kinds of uh, fuel sources seriously. That's, you know, because sun and the wind are spread out, diffused, dispersed. They're not concentrated the way that fossil fuel is. We can see it beginning to happen in agriculture. Last year, the USDA uh, said that for the first time in 150 years, the number of farms in America had gone up instead of down. Um, that's all of that growth coming at the very small end of the scale on farmers who are growing food to sell to their neighbors. Farmers markets are the fastest growing part of our food economy. Uh, we need to get off the, um, uh, uh, you know, incredibly industrialized monoculture, uh, fossil fuel based agriculture that Iowa has specialized in and use that great topsoil for other things. Um, and I, I, I think we will. I think the question is whether we'll do it in time to deal with the problems that we've got or not. As you know, Bill, increasingly students are viewing higher education as a necessary step uh, towards professional success. Uh, that They come here with the hopes that we'll educate them and help them find their jobs and make their way. How do you feel universities should be best used? Uh, not only from you and I as educators in our classrooms, but from a student's perspective, using the uh, four years that they're in our institutions. I think the most interesting thing about colleges and universities is that they are the four years in an average American's life when they live in the way that most human beings have always lived, i.e. in close physical and emotional proximity to a lot of other people. Um, we sometimes wonder why old grads, you know, come wandering back for a reunion, going on and on about how these were the best years of their lives. And the reason I'm afraid is not because they enjoyed Sociology 101 so much. It's because for those four years, there were lots of other people around. Um, um, that's what we evolved to, to, to be like as human beings. We are social animals. And the great shame of our uh, higher education is that it devotes itself to teaching everybody how to make enough money that they never have to live that way again. Well, and that's a good point because um, connections is something. Uh, certainly once you leave uh, the confines of our institutions, our dorms, if you will, and uh, enter the real world that our, our general society lacks, um, how does this kind of relocalization that we're talking about uh, from kind of a, a, a business point of view, how can we also be looking at reconnecting our communities? Well, think about something like the farmer's market. What's interesting about it is not only its ecological success, uh, it's the fact that the average shopper at a farmer's market turns out to have ten times more conversations per visit than the average shopper at a supermarket. One of the interesting questions for Americans is why fewer Americans say that they're satisfied with their lives now than 50 years ago, even though our standard of living has almost trebled. And the reason to the degree that we can figure it out is because people feel a great loss of connection with each other. 
Uh, that's not merely something, some sentimental idea. The average American eats meals with friends or family or neighbors half as often as 50 years ago. The average American has half as many close friends as 50 years ago. Um, these are great losses, and it's because we've devoted ourselves mostly to the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. A relocalized economy will help us overcome some of that, but I think that when people are in college, it's an excellent time to try to think a little bit about that, to try to perceive whether or not you like the um, experience of being in a community, which is what a college is, and if so, to realize that you're allowed to pursue that your whole life if you want to. Being in this institution, Bill, the University of Iowa, that's still recovering from devastating flood damages ourselves a couple of years ago, I'm well aware of the staggering costs that are associated with these disasters. Um, money seems to, to talk, and I was wondering if you could uh, just mention a little bit about the financial impact that climate change is having on these global economies. Well, think about a country like Pakistan. Um, you know, they had a lot of problems a month ago, but now all those problems are dwarfed by the fact that most of their bridges are gone, uh, an awful lot of their best farmland is underwater, uh, they're missing millions of homes. Uh, that's what they're going to do for the next 10 years is try somehow to get back to where they were before all this, which wasn't that great a place anyway. Uh, the same thing is true around the world. Uh, we're setting up, uh, if we allow climate change to continue getting out of hand, we're setting up an economic treadmill that we'll never be able to catch up to. And it's one of the things that's most depressing about our situation. Uh, we don't have as much money in this country even as we used to, since we wasted a great deal of it in the last eight years, you know, fighting wars and so on and so forth. Uh, now that those deficits are, are overpowering, just dealing with things like our infrastructure in a world that's getting stormier, hotter, more difficult, uh, will be very, very hard, very, very challenging. The new world, the new planet uh, that you describe as being unfairly inherited by our young people as they, they leave, uh, the problems that you talk about are going to be problems that they will take on. How would you explain to them the history that led us to this point, and what direction can you give them on being the agents of change? Uh, young people have so much been a part of the movements of, of change in our, in our uh, past, what would your call be to them today? Well, you know, I, we've started, uh, myself and seven at the time, 22-year-olds who were still in college at Middlebury College in Vermont, where I work. Three years ago, we started an operation called 350.org uh, that takes its name from the amount of carbon the scientists tell us is the most we can safely have in the atmosphere. And in three years, with the help of young people in every part of the world, we've built that into the largest global grassroots effort on climate change, or indeed on almost anything else that there's ever been. Last year, we managed to coordinate 5,200 simultaneous demonstrations in 181 countries, what CNN called the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. That was accomplished almost entirely by young people, college age, younger, a little older, uh, we need that kind of leadership in every community and in every country, and uh, we really hope people will take advantage of tools like 350.org to become involved in a serious way. I think it's pretty clear at this point that uh, nobody's going to do it for us, that big companies aren't going to voluntarily give up uh, any of their business model 
that our governments are at the moment not feeling enough pressure to make them change, we're going to have to build that movement if we want to have any chance of success. Uh, Juliet Shore, who has just written a book, Plenitude, that echoes many of the same thoughts that, uh, that you uh, write in your book, Earth, uh, has said that a key obstacle to moving forward um, on a new vision is a lack of confidence that there's another way. Uh, we certainly seem reluctant to give up these old models. A great deal of data uh, on global warming exists. Uh, we see the destruction um, kind of feeding our, our heads, if you will. But I was wondering if you were to speak, uh, Bill, directly to our hearts and not our minds, uh, what would be the emotional uh, argument that you would make? Because, again, the heart and not our mind. Well, look, if you care about the rest of creation, and I should say I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher, so I have a kind of uh, religious bent here sometimes. If you care about the rest of creation, all the other things on God's earth, then you have to care about climate change. The scientists tell us we may lose half the species on earth this century due to the warming. If you care about the poorest people on earth, the most vulnerable, then no greater threat exists than this rapidly warming climate. And it's always worth remembering they've done nothing to cause it. It's only those of us who burn a lot of fossil fuel that have driven it. Uh, if you care at all about the future, if you think that generations past your own, your children, but the hundredth generation past your children too, should matter, then you better care about this because we're busy degrading the world that we were born onto in a way that will impoverish all future generations, human and non-human. Um, look, what we're doing is the biggest thing that human beings have ever done, change the climate. And we better slow it down as fast as we can to have any hope of being able to deal with it. That's the moral question of our time. The biggest practical question, too, but it's the biggest moral question. Uh, and it's worth all the passion and sacrifice and commitment that previous generations of young people brought to, say, the civil rights movement. Finally, one last question, Bill. I'm creating a set of Ten Commandments for the course. Uh, the list will articulate the unique approach to higher education I'm hoping to foster. If you were to add one commandment for today's university classroom, what would it be? Uh, just to um, acknowledge that the most important learning that goes on in a college or university is outside the classroom. And that the biggest lesson that they, that, that these institutions can teach is about the value of community. Bill, I thank you so much for your time and I'm really in your debt for your work. Well, back at you. Many thanks for this and I'll look forward to seeing you when I get to Iowa. All right. Thank you, Bill. Good. Take care. Bye bye.